0: Welcome to Open Ears from the Open College of the Arts, a podcast exploring what it means to be a musician today through conversations with composers, performers and artists from a diverse range of traditions, backgrounds and practices. One of the key themes of this podcast is exploring different routes into becoming a professional musician. At the OCA, our students come from a really wide range of backgrounds and often aren't on a traditional pathway into a music career. One of the things which comes out of these conversations, though, is that there isn't really such a thing as a traditional pathway, and that every career and every musical practice is unique. A fantastic example of this is my guest for this episode, the composer Nina Danon, whose work includes traditional concert music, but also installations, music for the moving image, collaborations across disciplines, and a host of other media as well. This is a really wide-ranging discussion in this episode. We start off with Nina's career, the type of work that she does, and how she became a composer, going on to explore what composition can mean outside of the concert hall, and how composers can access and engage with collaboration across disciplines and art forms. We then discuss different perspectives on music, for example from the perspective of neurodiverse artists and listeners, and how the music we make expresses our own identity, and how artists have a responsibility to be aware of the implications of the work that we're making. Finally, we touch on diversity in music, the challenges and opportunities this presents for our art form, and how we can support each other as artists. I had a fantastic time chatting with Nina, and I learned a lot. I hope you enjoy our conversation as well.
1: Hi, I'm Nina, so I'm a French and Italian composer, sound artist, pianist, and lecturer. Um, My background originally was in classical piano and film music. uh, Now I specialize more in site-specific works, uh, narrative music, what all that entails so my work ranges from sound installations for museums and natural spaces to concert music uh, theater music It's quite eclectic in uh, in style okay cool and so,
0: okay so just to flesh out that a little bit how did you end up working in music in the first place um and how did you end up kind of going down the path that you went down
1: uh good question so <laughs> Uh, I started playing the piano when I was really young, like four and a half or something like this. So I was always interested in music. Uh, my parents are not musicians, but there was always music going on in the house. And my, my dad plays a bit of piano guitar that sells totes and my mom listens to a lot of music. So I grew up in a musical environment that way. And um, it was always one of my biggest interests. So it sort of naturally evolved. Like I entered I, when I was 11, I started the, the music academy, the conservatorio in Italy, where I grew up, um, studying piano. So that was like a 10 years course, which is like undergraduate and master's degree, like altogether it was the old, the old system. And while I was doing that, I also started teaching, like most instrumentalists do, teaching piano lessons. That was my first job. And I progressively moved toward composition. Uh, there was quite an organic transition, like it wasn't like one day I said, oh, I'm not going to be a pianist. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm still a pianist, but most of my work comes from composition and arranging, uh, while well, initially I was planning to do the other <laughs> to do the other way around. Uh, but while I was studying towards the last few years, uh, I injured my arm, so that caused a lot of issues <laughs> for a pianist. Um, and it just wouldn't get better, which I now found out that it's because I had a genetic condition called Alexander syndrome. But I've only been diagnosed last year, so it was fairly recent. Uh, but that explains why uh, everything that they kept doing to help me with my arm actually made it worse. Um, so I was even told by a specialist in helping tendinitis in musicians that I would never play again, which luckily wasn't true, but you know, it was a very scary time. Um, so my interest in composition, then I started going more and more towards that because it was something that I could do even though well, I was you know, finishing my, my piano studies at the same time and I began assisting various composers and orchestrators um, and I got more and more interested in film music which had always been something I was into so I was also doing film school and learning how to be a you know to direct and script writing and all this thing which was great for networking um, because I started to score in a lot of short films for my fellow students as well as my own stuff um, and then later I did a master's in sound arts uh, in London at Goldsmiths and uh, while doing that I was still developing you know, my, my network, realizing that I were more interested in all sorts of uh, collaborative composition approaches. So working with all kinds of different artists, um, creating my own opportunities. I did some crazy things like uh, putting together my own theater troupe with a friend of mine who was a, an actress. And we put up a play with over 16 artists at our first play that was like something completely insane. Um, I wouldn't do that again ever. <laughs> it was great as a, you know, <laughs> as a starting point yeah, you know, we wouldn't get that kind of opportunity otherwise, so we just made it and it worked out by some weird kind of miracles. Uh, but it was like a great, great way of networking, where we're trying things out. Um, so I'm not sure when I would have started calling myself a professional <laughs> musician, like really, but um, I always had like multiple strains of income. Um, so but, you know, what's called a portfolio career from, you know, lecturing, teaching, then lecturing, um, you know, composition, arranging, recording. Um, which I found that that for me that's much more satisfying than having just one focus. I know that's not something that uh, works for many people, but I like you know that helps me when I procrastinate. Because <laughs> if I procrastinate on one project, I'm working on another one, so I'm still doing something productive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I know exactly what you mean, and I know I also have that same portfolio career experience. So yeah, I think it's great being able to have actually those different facets of a of a of a pr- creative practice, and they all they all inform each other, don't they as well?
1: Yeah, totally. Especially the teaching, like I find that that really informs, is informed by what I do, but also helps me reflect <laughs> on yes. a lot of aspects that I would not think about in my in my practice. And uh, I, I really love uh, analyzing things and researching. That's also why I really enjoy having a portfolio career because some projects are really interesting, but they take place over a really long period of time, which they need that. And I love that being able to really take time to research things and craft things out and test things and change them. Um, but that there's always dead moments when you're happy to be doing something else, creative at the same time. And also financially, obviously, those projects are not the one that can sustain you for a long time. So it's quite good to be able to have, the, you know, have, for me, having a portfolio career really means that I can select my projects much better in terms of what interests me. Mm. Um, so it gives me a bit more flexibility than my initial sort of plan for a career, which were more in like film music, which I found that doesn't really suit me from that point of view.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I, just to just to investigate that a bit further. So you do write concert music, don't you? But then also there's this this sound art angle with the installations and um, generally music that's outside the concert hall in some way. Could you kind of tell us a bit about that practice and kind of how that works for you?
1: Um, well, I came to that in a, probably in like a strange, <laughs> from a strange direction. Because uh, I know a lot of my colleagues started with the concert music um, and then moved on to the center. I did it the other way around. Um, so I only started writing concert music fairly recently, like what, three, four years ago, because um, I approached it first from the film music, um, which then turned into music for installation, for, well, sound installation and compositions for galleries and museums, which in a way it's quite similar to film music in that sense that you're mm. still telling, I mean, it's a narrative form of music, which in terms of composition it's maybe similar to writing for games in that sense that you have some it's non-linear so you know um some of it but my first approaches were quite linear more like an album that was played in the space and now we're you know, experimenting more and more and when i did my degree in, in sound arts we started you know uh, looking at that part of uh, music history and uh, learning a bit more about it and different techniques but i'm not doing much generative music in that sense i know that a lot of people who work in sound arts do it more that way i like to. T- Compose it more like a score, which then maybe sometimes get pulled apart and put in a lot of different positions. But so it's some kind of hybrid, yeah. <laughs> hybrid thing between writing concert music, um, or a film score or an album, um, but working also with the space. So usually, depending on the on the nature of the project, um, you know, it's, it, it interacts with different senses uh, with, um, you know, I did a sound installation. One of my first projects was for a winery. Uh, well, a wine museum in Northern Italy. Um, and they had this olfactory gallery that they were creating. So they, were, they, they had a multi-sensory uh, little gallery where you just walk through that and you smell different uh, perfumes and you have to start recognizing those and touching a few things as well. Um, and to prepare you to recognize those perfumes when doing a wine tasting of two specific wines. So they commissioned the music to um, enhance the perception yeah. of those specific smells yeah that
0: sounds that sounds absolutely fascinating so how did you go about creating music to correspond to a smell or a, t- a taste or a texture like how does that how do you approach that
1: well i did a lot of research first of course to see what yeah, what research exists on cross modal perceptions uh, which is quite a lot and I'm always quite fascinated at going through really deep rabbit holes and reading this. um uh, but yeah so there's there are certain um Correspondences between our senses. So, certain uh, pitches, for example, will enhance certain tastes. Um, so, uh, you know, some pitches can make something feel bitter or or sweeter. Um, and the timbre of some instruments as well can have you know, different perception, um, tactile perceptions, for example, that can be evoked. So, th- there's definitely some, some things are uh, common for everyone, really. Like, the, you know, for a majority of people, we respond mm. in certain ways to certain. Certain sound, but other things are more personal in that sense. So there's obviously a, a part of it that is very subjective. Mm. Is that is that just a, a kind of extension
0: of the idea of like when we talk about lightness and darkness in sound, we talk about um, the way we talk about texture is often very tactile. Is it kind of just an extension of that, or is it some is it something kind of more scientific?
1: Um, I think it's a mix mix of both, really. Um, like there's there's definitely some there's some scientific elements but there's some, something that everybody recognizes in, in one way or another. And there's a lot of things that are cultural associations mm. as well, like if you talk about light and, and dark and not, it's not going to be 100% of people who will perceive it in the same way. But there's a vast majority of people who will associate it like that. And some are, are just correspondency that we have through natural things. So for example, when we talked about enhancing the sense of, of smell, then we used a lot of the, the, the piece. Um, had a lot of things that reminded the rain I remind of rain because when you you know when it rains you smell you, you know all the perfumes like come out a lot stronger so some of the scenes are just association that we have through <laughs> our life but um other scenes are more like synesthetic perceptions so you won't have you know not they will change from person to person um but there are scenes like when you talk about textures that's definitely something that you can perceive with all senses so it's really something that you can use in a composition like you can feel a texture. You can smell a texture. You can taste a texture. Uh, you can see one. So that's something that you can use as a as a metaphor. You know. So it's like the bridge. Um, and if you if you have something, you know, you recognize the same element. Um, you know, say, oh, this sound is a bit rough, um, and oh, this uh, this thing I'm touching feels a bit rough. So then, all the other things that you associated to that sound, you'll associate them to the um, to the, the thing you're touching or the thing you're saying. Uh, so it's it's a really good way to create a bridge between two different uh different media really
0: that's fascinating I love that idea is there a part of you that wants to now kind of create those multi-sensory experiences or are, are you just kind of you're like the, the sound person or would you kind of want to expand that and become this kind of like curator of all possible senses
1: well, I like to work with other people. There's a lot of, I wish I, I, wish I knew how to, you know, create perfumes and things, but that's a skill I don't have. Um, so I like to work with people who can't do that. <laughs> but yeah, on some things, uh, I, I like working with visual media as well, like with video uh, and, and photos. So I've done some audiovisual visual installations, usually in collaboration with other artists, but well, I've I've worked on both sides of of that. Uh, but that's because that's a medium that I'm comfortable with. I have a, a basic knowledge of it if we want, but, yeah, mostly I, I, I do like being part of the whole creative process and so not just being commissioned, you know, mm. to say, oh, we've already done this thing. Can you add the music to it? But being part of it from the beginning so that you, even if you're creating just one aspect of it, like just the sound, um, you can still influence, you know, so the music will influence the other elements as much as they will influence the music. So it's more for dialogue. Mm. Um, and regardless of what style, whether it's an installation or a film or, you know, a play or anything, it's, usually much more rewarding to be part of it from the start so that you can help shape it. Um, And and influences the music a lot as well. Like when you're part of it from the beginning, you understand the project much better. So you, you know what other people are doing, not just their result, but the whole creative process. Mm. So you can match that in some ways.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, There's nothing like a good collaboration, is there? Um, When you write about your work, you often talk about, um, a couple of things that I think are really, really interesting. So you talk about um, your own identity, kind of, and exploring that through your work. In your own words, could you kind of just like
1: explain that? You know, we talk right now about multisensory approach, and that's something that has always fascinated me. Even when I wasn't thinking about that, I mean, even when I was just um, a piano student um, and a high schooler, I was doing my. You know, Thesis for my art history class, the correspondence between Debussy's music and Baudelaire's poetry and the, the you know, uh, multi-sensory, uh, the, the connection between the senses. So that was something that was always really intriguing for me, um, even before, like, And then when I started working in film, there was also one of the aspects, I mean, I love storytelling, that's one thing, but also the way that music interacted with the editing and with the cinematography um, and all aspects, with the shapes, the colors, uh the perfumes and you know the, the visuals all aspects of that um, I was always very attracted to that but I never really figured out why I just okay that's that's my taste mm. um and I always started composing you know after I did my my master's um I started going into that direction more and more like I did, I did a, an album for uh, a multi-sensory exhibition I did that project for the olfactory gallery um and it's only when last year yeah, about a year ago now, I found out that I was neurodivergent. So I realized I was autistic ADHD, um, and that I had a form of synesthesia. Um, and that's when I, that's when it hit me why I'm really attracted to the thing is because it's a myth. It's just how I perceive the world. Um, so there's you know, my, my multisensory approaches. They were due to my my own forms of synesthesia, um, which is auditory tactile synesthesia. Um, my misophonia as well, like you know this the, which I'm not, you know, that's not a scientifically proven because there's not much research in that direction, but there's, for me, there's definitely a link between the two. What was that word, sorry, mesophonia? Mesophonia, yeah, it's when you, you, certain sound uh, can trigger some really extreme response. Usually when we talk about mesophonia, it's something negative. (laughs) Uh, So it's a really immediate, um, aggressive or or bothering. You just feel it really strong and it's too much. It becomes quite overwhelming. And that can even be with sound that are not very loud, but it's often like, you know, chewing sounds or things like this. But they, they trigger a really involuntary, really strong response immediately. Um, so I do have that at times. And it just heightens sensory perceptions in general, uh, which is very common in, you know, I know a lot of other autistics and ADHD and neurodivergence in general who have those. Yeah. Um, and... For me, that's always something that obviously influenced the way I perceive the world since I was a kid. So that's influenced my approach to music. So I, I do feel music as a multi-sensory approach. You know, you, I don't just feel, hear music, but like we all do, but it's somehow heightened in my perception compared to how most people will approach music, partly because I'm a musician, <laughs> partly because I'm autistic and, uh, and synesthetic. Um, so that's always been, you know, so writing, now that I'm aware of that, I'm developing that more and more in my music. So I'm more aware of that. So I'm going to do a whole uh, PhD, practice-based PhD to focus on that, that element, So um, understanding it and then using that to develop my own compositional language, uh, but also something that I hope can expand their understanding of neurodivergent creative practices in general, because that's something that's very common. Actually, a lot of neurodivergent artists, especially autistic, will have, um, o- all those who have <laughs> heightened sensory perception are obviously influenced in their you know in, in their creative practice. I'm just speaking from my from my own yeah, perspective, course, and I'm not course. saying that all autistic will have heightened no, no, sensory no, no. perception, and some don't uh, some don't have them at all. Um, yeah. but it's it's just part of neurodivergent culture in a in a in a way, and something that's not really this like. For many students, for example, you know, I realized that if they are, if they have any heightened sensory perceptions, whether they're neurodivergent or not, I mean, it can also be because they have, they're just orally diverse, like they hear differently, um, whether more or less than the average person. Um, Often that, that will have a strong impact on how they listen to music, how they think about music and how they compose. But it's not usually what we use in music classes to approach composition or music theory. When you start having this discussion with students, I found that it can really trigger some really interesting connections for them. Um, and then it helps them understand, you know, not telling you not telling them because you, you can't imagine what they're, how they're experiencing the world, but just giving them different examples. Say, oh, look, these musicians have this sensory perception and that you know that trigger this style of music, or you know, oh, look, they use these sounds because for them that's a really strong tactile perception and on. Um, and when you have conversations on that, and you find that students have the most interesting responses usually.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'll bet they do. Yeah, that's fascinating. What I really love about that is the way that you can say, you can have music that is true to you and, and, and is expressive of your identity, but it is, is also collaborative with other people. I, I love that because it's like the, the multisensory uh, work, the collaborative work, but yet it's also expressive of your own lived reality. Uh, as someone who's got this synesthetic reaction to stuff and I think that's that's a really nice um, contrast with the kind of like traditional creative model of like the one vision and like this is my thing and I'm just going to create it in the world and that's it that, but that seems a lot more kind of like reactive and responsive and I don't know gentler in a very positive way I think that sounds, that sounds very positive to me
1: I, think, I mean to be perfectly honest uh, sometimes it's just like you said, you know, I, sometimes I wish I could control everything because I am a bit of a control freak. Uh, but I just, I, I do like working in multidisciplinary. I, I don't have the skills. You know, I can't play every instrument. So I have to collaborate with musicians who can play them. Mm. Um, and I, I can't, you know, we all have things that we, we study and do really well. And when you're producing, a, even if you just produce an album that's just purely a musical and there's no other um, art forms involved, you still need, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert uh, sound engineer. Yeah, I know the basics, but I wouldn't do that if I'm producing something. Though no. I'd rather collaborate with someone who knows what they're doing. So there's like the basic, you know, uh, most prefer- on the most basic level. That's yeah. there's a need for collaboration in this field. Like I often use electronic music in my in my work, but again, I'm not an expert at composing or, or producing that. So I'll work with someone who can, and it's just. But yeah, also, I find that it helps also challenging your ideas you know, a, lot, a lot. Like because like lots of musicians i can get really you know if if i'm focused on a piece and i'll just work on and be completely become obsessive about that and just work 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 on this and at some point you have this tunnel vision which is part of the creative process but you need to also have someone to give you an external opinion so that that helps to see the when you get stuck for example um yeah. and you really at some point you can't see how to get out of that saying it really helps to have a collaborator, even if they're doing something completely different, like they bring another art form. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's not someone who's doing, um, they're not giving you, maybe even if they're not telling you how to do your music, uh, but it's just having that dialogue and it just will open up a new connection. Um, so I find that the most interesting ideas come that way. Uh, but also in terms of understanding my own creative process, it really helps to see it through the eyes of someone else. I'm going more and more towards wanting to, enable other people to bring their own aspects and, for example, I'm working on a new project which is still at the very early stages, but we're, we're focusing on creating this new compositional language. My part is based on my own perceptions of, of touch, sound and touch, um, and how they work together. So I'm working with other musicians on that who, want bring their own skills, which I don't have, but also they, they also are neurodivergent and have their own forms of synesthesia, which are obviously not the same as mine but it's quite interesting to see then how they respond to the same starting point um, and understanding their creative practice which is similar to mine but has as its own spin you know depending on what instrument they play or what the background is and what kind of music they listen to and we, we all grow up differently so it's quite fascinating and I understand much more about my own my own creative process by developing it like that and giving more room to your know, performers to bring their own spin to things and it's also quite freeing i must say, as a composer enabling com- performers to have more freedom and be a bit less of a control for it on my own music like by allowing them to for example improvise and doing <laughs> doing more bringing more of their own personality on it they usually feel happier and you know, I know I as a performer also enjoy that too, when I'm given the freedom to bring my own um, yes, well, me too. Bring my own ideas, you know. Uh, and as a composer, it's yeah, you always first have this initial, especially when you're working with someone new, you always have this that, that worry that, oh, it's not gonna be exactly what I envisage. But actually, if your piece has a strong concept from the beginning, um, usually it's end up being better than what you imagine. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I've, I very much have had that experience. Yeah, absolutely. That sense of collaborating with a performer and then you, you're you accessing the best parts of each other's practice, it feels like sometimes, and you're kind of building off each other. Because it's, it's easy to think of a performer just as like the person who comes along and plays the music, but it, it's so much more than that, isn't it, when it works.
1: Yeah. yeah, when it works. I know that it's not always the case, Like you know, and yeah, if anybody is listening and has had some bad collaboration that happens to everyone, but I would definitely encourage them to try to find better collaborators in that sense that are more suited to them not just to give up collaborations altogether. Because yes. yeah. uh, that would be a
0: really big shame. It's hard when you're a young composer or a developing composer working with institutions like orchestras or whatever, arts institutions, because sometimes it's like, oh, you bring your piece, you get like half an hour of workshop time and then they record it for you or something. And that can be great. But it, if you're working in that space, it encourages a certain type of composition which can't then blossom into a, into a really positive relationship because it's all about that really concentrated process and I think you know it's really important to seek out those collaborators when you can just have more space to play and experiment and and learn from each other
1: yeah that's that's definitely true and that's where I find that collaborating uh, experiences when you're just working with one performer um, especially when you're learning how to write for certain instruments or you want to try out new ideas working with a smaller ensemble or with just you know one person or two two musicians or something it's it's much better in that sense because, you know, it's more affordable um, even if you have to, if you're in a situation where you have to pay for the recording session, for example, it's much more affordable that way. But you also have a lot more flexibility around how you communicate with them, um, how you exchange ideas. And yeah, the performer doesn't just have to come in the end. That's something that I I find a lot of, I mean, I made that mistake because I started from film music, where you just have the recording session and that's it, um, and you're not communicating with your musicians before that at all. Uh, and that's when you see that. But but when you can just discuss things with them, I mean, even if they can change some of your music. But it can be a, a conversation. You know, you can send them an idea, they can send it back to you. Um, you can have a workshop. You can have multiple recording sessions. Uh, especially now that you have remote recording sessions available a lot of the time, like musicians, a lot of musicians will have the means to record their own ideas um, on a decent level that you can still use that professionally. Yeah. So that opens up so many new possibilities. That I, I find that much more interesting to work in that way. But it's also quite reassuring. I found when you know I've seen when I, I've had some of my students do some of that type of work and he removed a lot of the anxiety that they had about working with a musician because it wasn't just oh I'm, I'm giving them my piece you know I'm giving them the score at the recording session and if it doesn't work that's it <laughs> I don't know what to do um, but they get to know the performer better so it removes the anxiety you know, performers are usually very happy to tell you about the instrument but they can bring their own ideas
0: yeah I could not agree more um, so you've also written about something that's important to you in your work is that it empowers marginalised communities. If you could just tell us about that, that would be super interesting.
1: Yeah, an important aspect of my work for me is to um, empower marginalised communities, partly because that's some of my own experiences. So you know, I am neurodivergent, I am disabled, um, I am a non-bi- non-binary woman. <laughs> so that's all kind of different parts of my identity that have always um, b- reflected themselves in my music. So in the same way that I'm interested in exploring how that impacts on my creative process because it has a huge impact instead of hiding it which is what I've been doing most of my life I wasn't aware of them or just um, you know try to blend in so you know when you're the only for example the only young woman in a in a men's (laughs) space in film music especially that happened a lot at the start of my career you tend to just try to blend in and do things the same way that other people do um but actually it's much more interesting from a creative point of view to bring your own voice and understand how you do things differently because of your own differences um, which is something that luckily is starting to change in the music world i found that like, you know in recent years there's been more talks about well recognizing that some communities are really underrepresented some voices are completely underrepresented um, in all kinds of you know minorities linked to any kind of differences when, you know uh, whether it 's about ethnicity or it's about gender identity or it's about disability and you know there's only been a few voices centered um so uh, socio economical background as well like let's not that aspect so obviously you know my I can only speak from my own experience or come from some minorities and i can't pretend to understand um, the struggle of people coming from others, but in general, I quite enjoy exploring that aspect of my creativity and working with other musicians who who come from the same minorities, or like I mentioned before, or who come from other minorities, but to understand their voices, because often they'll have completely fresh approaches to music that just because of the cultural norms and because of where Western classical music (laughs) comes from and uh, because of colonialism and so many different reasons, have not been heard so it's not that these voices didn't exist before they have throughout the whole history of music but often you don't know about them I mean I didn't even throughout my whole study I studied classical piano you know I have a master's degree in that I never played a single piece by a Roman composer or a composer of color that's quite shocking when I realized that Uh, because but at the time it didn't even occur to me and that's the thing, isn't
0: it? Yeah, as well. It doesn't occur to you. You just accept it as the norm. But as soon as it's pointed out to you, you're like, oh my goodness, that is a, that is such a strong and massive bias, but we just accepted it.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And when I started teaching and I, I tried to challenge that, I really struggled to find pieces, find example. find pieces to assign my students when I was teaching piano or find relevant examples when I am teaching composition. I still struggle sometimes, you know, like, yeah, last year, I, I always analyze my that <laughs> Last year I had 47% of my example were by women and non-binary composers. So at least it was getting there, but it's still not, you know, completely. Yeah. And min- yeah, trying to bring in other minorities, realized when I was starting to put more, you know, uh, more of an emphasis on disabled musicians, and I really struggle. And there's so many out there, but I, you know, now I'm starting to know a little bit more about that aspect of music, but it's really something that, you have to make an active conscious effort when teaching is really your responsibility you know it, it is the responsibility of the lecturers i find and the teachers so in, t- in teaching especially but also in terms of yeah, performance opportunities and collaborations opportunities as well uh, yeah. it's it's quite but it's not just i know that a lot of people have an issue <laughs> with that which i think you know there's yeah um but I mean, some people think that it's just about addressing the inequalities, which is a big part of it. And I think it's massively important. But I don't think it's just that. It's also because these voices have been silenced for so long, their ideas have also that like, we are not I haven't been exposed to those. So, I mean, the more I read and learn and listen to and talk to voices that you know, marginalize voices, the more I have new ideas as well, like because you, you just it challenges the the perception you you have of music in general you know and it can be seen that you find scary or it can be seen that you find actually really or things that really resonate with you mm-hmm. and like every time you learn something you know it's not so But there's like different ways of thinking about music um different you know different way of thinking about everything like i i read recently something about it was about the perception of time um, it was called, called Crip Time. There was an article called Crip Time, and it was about the perception of time for, for the disabled community. And I found that so fascinating. And that's not just because, I mean, I'm learning to understand and cope with my own disability, which thanks to COVID has been exponentially worse. But so, yeah, I, I do have times, my perception of time has changed because of that. So it resonated with me so much, but also other aspects, like that was only focusing on uh, physical disability. So it resonated with me as someone who, who has chronic fatigue and the way that your all your whole perception of how you think about time is different. Um, and that has positives and negatives, but as an artist, that's really interesting for me because a lot of my work revo- revolves around time. And also as a neurodivergent artist, I was already, you know, I stumbled upon that article because I was doing research on how my perception of time as, um, as an ADHD and an autistic person is already different like it's really flexible and in shifts like it's quite elastic like sometimes um, I can I can hyper focus and <laughs> time will just it's not like you're gonna go faster it's just that it's another dimension you know? um, and that's something that I find really interesting I want to explore more in my music but it's not something that I knew a lot about mm. um, so reading about how other people perceive that helps me understand that better and trigger new new concept, new ideas, you know, and yeah. new conversation. Because then I could talk to members of other marginalized communities on how they perceive time. Um and that's part interesting conversation for for, for them and for me. And it's it's just makes everyone's life's richer, I think.
0: Yes, that's the thing, isn't it? And like you know, you say people criticize diversity initiatives that aim to get better representation of minorities. But there's such a good argument for it from an actual aesthetic perspective in terms of like actually being exposed to ideas and being exposed to ways of thinking and ways of making music that we're unfamiliar with. And I do think you have to... I don't think they've got a leg to stand on to be perfectly honest when they criticise that, because it's so clear that, you know, for example, in a composition competition, you know, people select music that they are familiar with, that they understand. If they're presented with something really unfamiliar you know they tend not to give it as much credit as things that they that they have an intimate understanding of and that's not a criticism i think that's just part of human nature and so i think we need to be proactive in seeking out those new forms of expression and and prioritizing them because you know it's great when you when your world expands isn't it you know that's the that's the benefit that's that's why diversity is a good thing
1: I mean as an artist, I couldn't see why you wouldn't want to have be exposed to more art and and more diverse voices because it's just what is exciting, you know, like discovering something new. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't I think most of the time it's people are scared. They're afraid of changes in terminology, they're afraid of making a mistake. And I think that's just the wrong, the wrong approach. I mean, we all make mistakes. People are afraid of being, you know, of, um, of making mistakes such as cultural appropriation or which it is a very dangerous. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. You know, it's something that we should all be wary of, <laughs> of of doing that. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't expose yourself to other cultures because you're afraid of that. You just learn from your own practice and be a critically reflective <laughs> practitioner. So understand where your influences are coming from, and if you're attracted by something, then then just bring that voice to the table. You know, if you really. If you're really fascinated by a culture that's not your own, but you think that you would like to explore that as an artist, then why don't you go meet that other, an artist from that culture, bring them to the table, and you can bring your own voice, they can bring their own, and you can have a really, you don't know what's going to come out of that, but it's going to be something that you can't even imagine on your own if you were to you know, try to appropriate a culture that's not young because you just don't have the background for yeah. that. But the same way as if you're writing, you know, if you've never heard of the cello, you know, you never studied how to write for cello and you're not a cello player, you're not going to improvise how to write for cello. You're going to bring in a cellist and ask them to, you know, is this idiomatic for your instrument? Um, and working with people from different cultures is, is just not scarier than that.
0: Yeah. It sounds, so, it sounds almost so obvious when you say it like that, doesn't it? but i th- but, I do think people are scared of that, and I think it's great to to give that clarity of as like how like, how we can draw from all these places as long as it's done respectfully and with communication and with understanding and
1: with like you say a critical approach and that's but it's fundamental to bring someone don't do something about a minority without someone from that minority without voices from that community to the table. And, yeah. you know, I, I've seen that done a lot in neurodivergent research <laughs> and because that's where my focus has been in the past year. And I've just done an actual research project on neurodiversity in the classroom. So that, that was really my, my main focus. And there's so much out there that is just research that's done without those voices to the table. So people assume they understand when actually then they bring their own bias and their own, you know, their own form of, Subconscious often discrimination, like I'm not saying people do that on purpose. Often it's just, you know, you grow up in a certain culture and you, are, you assimilate these ideas. And you know, I had forms of subconscious ableism, you know, uh, internalized ableism that I realized by doing these projects. But I realized that because I could tend to conversation, I had, you know, I'm neurodivergent myself, but I still, to do that project work, had a lot of collaboration, you know, conversations with other neurodivergent musicians, neurodivergent lecturers, neurodivergent students, because they had different perspectives from mine. And that helped me understand, you know, a lot of things that, a lot, a lot of, mis, not mistakes, it's not that they mistakes, but it just seems that I wasn't aware of <laughs> yeah. that I was doing or, you know, so even with the best intentions, if you grew up in a, in a society that is ableist or is racist or, you know, depending on which, <laughs> form of discrimination you're looking at but we and we do live in a society like that unfortunately yeah so even with the best intentions you are exposed to some of that you internalize some of this and it takes a lot to unpack that but it's important to do that for yourself and for the people you you work with
0: yeah but that's the
1: responsibility of an artist of a lecturer of a researcher is is to constantly that and you can't be expected and nobody expects everyone to be perfect all the time uh, you know we all have this internalized and it's very hard to do that you know I'm sure I still have a lot of ideas that um, haven't been challenged yet and the more you read about it the more you talk about it the more you find out uh, but ask for other people you know if you have conversation with other people that's and it doesn't need to be formal difficult sense you're just your friends <laughs> if you have friends from other minorities just just talk to talk to them about this. If you have an idea for a project, talk to people that might be, you know, if, if your project encompasses a minority, talk to people that will be affected by that, that project and, and be open for, to receive feedback that is, you know, be open to receive criticism because uh, it's not gonna be criticism aimed at saying, oh, you did something wrong. It's just, it's, it's a form of teaching. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So like you would, I mean, as musicians, I'm sure we're all familiar with having had your teachers constantly helping us improve our practice. If you're a performer, you know, you have one-to-one lessons. (laughs) such a huge part of your life, for example. I mean, I can't speak for other people, but I know that I'd much rather prefer someone who's making the project, you know, someone who's writing a piece about autism to come and ask me, can you proofread that for me? You know, can you just be a sensitivity reader? Is there some form of ableism in there? Mm. And, I mean, not everyone, you know, obviously not everyone would be happy to do that, but if you ask someone, would you, know, would you be happy to do something like that? And sensitivity readers exists. Uh, in books quite a lot for example and I don't see why well, we can't have that for other forms you know even for musical composition or for an essay or anything yeah and that that you know I'd much rather someone comes and asks me to do that and if I can't and don't have the energy because I often don't I'll tell them sorry I can't but I know this person who does that and obviously pay them for their labor if you ask them to do something like this I'm not saying anyone should do that for free like read a 50 page essay and you know and great but sometimes it can just be a thing you know it, how is that word okay you know Uh, is it okay for i don't understand you know i've read about this i don't understand what's the difference between saying autistic person or person with autism and what's the preference in the community and you'll find that most people will be very happy to explain that to you or to just point you to the right resource you know yeah um, and be much happier to do that than seeing a result of something that makes you feel really uncomfortable when you read it or see it and feels like a form of discrimination because that's traumatizing and just reopens all trauma over and over.
0: Absolutely. I think that is fantastic advice, Nina. That is, I think that's so good. I'm going to ask you one more question. What are you working on at the moment? What creative things have you got coming up?
1: Um, So this month, uh, I just completed two compositions for uh, an immersive audiovisual installation at the Schneiberg museum the museum in, in turin um those, those were in, done in collaboration with my sister who's a painter and video artist and the uh, sound designer of Cassina, who's my long-term collaborator and um the sound wizard <laughs> that makes everything i do sound much better than it was originally um so that's something that you know we, Now we've we just finished that and uh, mastering the, the album, and which will be released at some point in the fall. Um, and I've just finished an action research project, as well, as I we mentioned before, for my PG cert in higher education on normalizing neurodiversity in the teaching of music composition. So that was my biggest, yeah, just, um, just submitting this week. So that was my, that was my biggest project of the, of the moment. Um, and I'm also in the, the planning phase uh, of a new commission from the Oral Diversity Network um, of a project that will be part of my practice based PhD at Goldsmith starting in the fall. Um, so it's still early days, but it's going to be a site specific composition and sound installation for the magmatic chamber of a dormant volcano in the Azores. So that's probably oh the God. biggest site specific. <laughs> so yeah that's it's still really early you know planning phase early days so I'm not too sure what form is gonna look what that's gonna sound like or look like or anything uh, because he's gonna be very collaborative so I have no idea what to expect yet from the project but I'm excited
0: that is incredibly exciting Um, I'm I've got to say I'm quite jealous that sounds amazing (laughs) Um, fantastic Nina thank you so much If you enjoyed that episode, you can subscribe to the podcast on the platform of your choice and I would really appreciate it if you could leave a rating, review or comment as this helps us better reach our audience and deliver a better listening experience for you. Thanks for listening. Until next time.